but I am happy that I am able to help out by stepping in and giving you some reflections on the theme that uh, uh, John was going to address. Uh, Paul mentioned the trenches of the ecumenical movement. Uh, in December of 1998, we were together, uh, he and I and some others, in Harare, Zimbabwe, for the uh, assembly of the World Council of Churches, which was meeting on the campus of the University of Zimbabwe. And uh, the campus was entirely dug up for some kind of construction work. At every step, one risked falling into a literal trench. And many were joking that we were, in that, in that case, literally in the trenches of the ecumenical movement. Lighting was not good, and at night uh, one had to be uh, very careful. Uh, just before Great Lent began, I was in Damascus and had the wonderful opportunity to meet uh, the Patriarch of Antioch, uh, Ignatius. He received me in the Patriarchate and uh, engaged with me in conversation for a couple of hours, perhaps more. And he gave me a very lucid uh, analysis of his view of the current state of the Orthodox Church worldwide. It was lucid and it was sad because he asserted, we cannot say that there is one Orthodox Church because there are in fact many. What he was referring to was the empirical quality of Orthodox Church life around the world. He was referring to the fact that the Orthodox on a world scale simply don't seem to have mechanisms that work to bring us together into a coherent worldwide witness. We all know that we all look to the ecumenical patriarch as the first among equals, and certainly Patriarch Ignatius referred to that, but we also know that at the Patriarchate in Constantinople, in Istanbul, there are no mechanisms that in fact help the Orthodox churches to come to a common mind on current issues and on current witness and on a common mind in, we in meeting the current challenges that the Orthodox Church faces. So in that way, uh, the patriarch was, was right, he was lucid, and it was a very sad and grievous analysis. Today at the liturgy, we heard three times the commemoration of all the heads of Orthodox churches. Uh, the heads who were commemorated are the patriarchs and archbishops and metropolitans who are heads of the autocephalous churches. Not commemorated were several heads of autonomous churches like Finland and Japan, but they are nevertheless a part of their respective patriarchates. Finland of Constantinople, Japan of Moscow. But the list of the commemorations of heads of churches very dramatically illustrates a deep sense of communion that we have in the Orthodox Church. We are one church in that sense, that we share fully and completely in Eucharistic communion. And the sign and symbol of that in the liturgy celebrated by the head of our church, Metropolitan Theodosius, is the commemoration of all the other heads of churches. Uh, the deacon and the choir sang out the names of the heads of churches at the time of the Trisagion, and the Metropolitan himself commem commemorated all the other heads of churches at the time of the great entrance and after the consecration of the holy gifts. 
Now that listing, which we all heard today, is, is a symbolic sign of the self-evident communion which we share with one another as Orthodox churches. And those who are not commemorated are the ones with whom we do not share Eucharistic communion. I'm simplifying a bit, but not too much. Now, because of this self-evident quality of the Eucharistic communion which we share in the Orthodox Church, even though we have no mechanisms to bring us together effectively as churches around the world, is so strongly felt that when there is a rupture in that communion, it is experienced as a very painful thing. Several years ago, because of a conflict over a church schism in Estonia, and the conflict involved the patriarchates of Moscow and Constantinople, there was a rupture for a short time of Eucharistic communion. The patriarch of Moscow ceased commemorating the name of the ecumenical patriarch in the liturgies that he celebrated. And for a short time, it was not possible for those of the Moscow Patriarchate to receive communion uh, with Constantinople. And that was felt painfully, both in the Moscow Patriarchate and in the Ecumenical Patriarchate. I'm told that in the unique parish in Oxford, England, which in fact is a parish both of the Moscow Patriarchate, with Bishop Basil of Sergiovo there, and, and of the Patriarchate of Constantinople, with Bishop Callistus Ware there, it was a most acute spiritual crisis. And the parish appealed to the churches to overcome uh, that painful division. Now, even though we all recognize the self-evident quality of the communion which we share one with another among the Orthodox churches, there can still be differences in how we approach the question of the status, ecclesially speaking, uh, in relation to Holy Communion of other Christians. In fact, the very vision that Orthodox have of other Christians is at this time in a state of crisis because there is a very strong debate among Orthodox, pitting one side against the other in very vivid terms. There are some Orthodox for whom the Orthodox Church, as we know it today, equals the very fullness of truth, equals the very Church of God, and there can be no other sign or presence of Christ or the Gospel or of the truth anywhere else. Everything else is an undifferentiated falsehood, blackness, and the light of Christ is present only within the boundaries of that Eucharistic communion, which I described on the basis of this morning's liturgy. For others, there are at least degrees of participation in the apostolic faith found in all of the other Christian bodies. That there are some who are closer in degree to the Orthodox faith, and to the apostolic tradition, as we would see it. And there are others who are distant from it. There are some who are very distant from it. But in any case, there is a differentiation. There are degrees of participation in the fullness of the truth. Let me give you 
several personal examples from many, many years ago. I was a college student at the University of Southern California in the early 1960s. And there, I had a friend who was at that time not Orthodox. He became Orthodox later. He was an Episcopalian. He was already attending uh, the Orthodox parish, of which I was a member in Los Angeles. But he still was a communicant of the Episcopal Church. And one Christmas Eve, early in the 1960s, I went with him to an Episcopal service of Christmas. And I have to describe for you the ambiguity of my experience in that Eucharistic service. On the one hand, I recognized immediately and directly the shape of the liturgy. I recognized the shape of the Eucharistic service, of course, in its Anglican Western variety, not the Eastern tradition, but I could see the fundamental elements of the Eucharistic liturgy clearly and beautifully celebrated. I heard the hymns and the prayers and the carols, and I found them to be authentic expressions of Christian faith. And I looked around and saw what I believe to be uh, pious people who were believers uh, in Christ and believers in the gospel. So in a certain sense, I was drawn, I was perhaps 19 years old, I was drawn to realize that somehow, in some sense, my goodness, I should be receiving communion. But I was also aware already at 19 that in another sense it was absolutely not possible. And even then I was recognizing that I was not going to blame the hierarchs or the rules of my church for this rupture because I did also understand that there were real differences which, at least from the Orthodox perspective, prevented me authentically, by conscience, from receiving Holy Communion there. So the ambiguity was that I recognized the shape of the Christian faith and the content of the Christian faith in that Eucharistic service, and yet I was not able, by my own conscience, not only because someone told me so, to be a participant in that Eucharistic liturgy. A few years passed, I studied here at St. Vladimir Seminary, went back to California, and was ordained a priest in 1969. My first assignment was in San Francisco, where I served as a priest in Holy Trinity Cathedral Parish, but for the English language part of that parish. And I used to go uh, with my wife and some college students regularly, at least several times a year, to a very large county hospital in San Francisco. In that county hospital, you could at any time assume that there would be 50 or so Orthodox patients. So we would go with a group of college students. We would be given a room in, in, uh, in the hospital where we would set up a table, an altar, have some icons, and we would celebrate the divine liturgy there. The students would go to the wards and would bring the Orthodox patients uh, who could come. Sometimes they were helped to walk. Sometimes they were in their wheelchairs. They would bring them to the room, and we would celebrate liturgy together with the patients. After the liturgy, the college students would accompany me to the wards and would uh, help me identify the Orthodox who were not ambulatory uh, to whom I brought Holy Communion. 
During one of those very joyful and meaningful liturgies in the county hospital in San Francisco, uh, rather early in the service, the door opened and a woman rolled in on her own in a wheelchair. And she was attending and participating in the liturgy. She must have heard the singing of the antiphons. And there she was with us through that divine liturgy. When the time came for me to walk around from person to person with Holy Communion, one of the students uh, pointed out to me that the uh, tag on the wrist of this uh, woman said that she was Roman Catholic. I have to tell you that I did give her Holy Communion, and I have to tell you that as I reflected on that later, I in my conscience did not feel I did the wrong thing. Uh, that woman had come uh, as an authentic movement of worship. She was baptized Christian. She was Roman Catholic. She was not there to make an ecumenical demonstration of any kind. She simply heard singing and prayer and was there. How could I refuse her Holy Communion? In my conscience, I do not believe I could. But then I have to tell you that in those same years in San Francisco, on five or six occasions, I did in fact feel in conscience that I had to turn some people away from the chalice. We were situated, if you know San Francisco, at Van Ness and Green, and in each direction, north, south, east, west, whichever way you go, within four or five blocks, there is a Roman Catholic church. And when I recognized, even though they were not wearing monastic habits anymore, that once in a while nuns came to receive Holy Communion at the liturgy that I celebrated, I did find a way not to be terribly offensive by asking them to step on and receive the, the wine and the bread that is received after Communion and ask them to stay so that they could talk with me and I with them after liturgy. But I did feel, even as I felt the pain and tragedy of the division at the Eucharistic table, I recognized that those women, women were authentic in their gesture. Nevertheless, I also knew that they were, in effect, violating the rules of their own church, because the rules of their own church, I believe, state that in case of dire need, a Roman Catholic may receive communion in an Orthodox church. Where is the dire need when you have to look for the Orthodox church and in any direction, north, south, east, west, there are large ortho Catholic churches. Uh, and yet, still, I did feel the pain of it all. I also felt that the gesture which they made very authentically, seeking to build, as it were, bridges of understanding and communion between their Catholic church and the Orthodox church, nevertheless, it did feel as if it was an act of Eucharistic aggression. Uh, it wasn't, I wasn't being even asked as the celebrant of that liturgy whether the Orthodox Church is able to offer Eucharistic hospitality. Eucharistic hospitality is about offering it. And this was being something that was claimed uh, without any effort to be in fact in a real dialogue. So, more ambiguity. Fundamentally, the mainstream of the orthodox view of this matter is that there is communion, Eucharistic communion within the church, and anything that is called intercommunion doesn't seem to be valid from the orthodox perspective. 
So the mainstream of orthodoxy still holds, and I think will hold, will continue to hold, this high view of communion as being in the fullness of unity in the faith and in the life of the church. The Roman Catholic Church, as I understand it, holds essentially the same view, but is at a point of offering Eucharistic hospitality to Christians from some churches, such as the Orthodox, where the apostolic succession is recognized by Rome and where the ordinations are recognized. And so certainly in pastoral dire need, uh, the Roman Catholic Church accepts that Roman Catholics could receive communion in an Orthodox Church and would be willing to extend Eucharistic hospitality to the Orthodox. There is only one formal case of an Orthodox Church accepting at least for a time this view which is held by the Catholic Church. In 1969, the Moscow Patriarchate, arguing in effect that in the vastnesses of the Soviet Union, where there were very few Orthodox churches and an almost insignificant number of Catholic churches, that it was appropriate to offer Eucharistic hospitality to Roman Catholics. And that was a formal action taken by the Holy Synod of the Moscow Patriarchate in 1969. Within the last 10 years or so, certainly that particular action has been reversed. Among the Protestant churches, there is a vast variety of practice, but most of it tending towards various forms of intercommunion and Eucharistic hospitality. Although, there are still some Anglicans, some Lutherans, and some Baptists who would not hold a view that would accept open communion. But among most Protestants, in their, in their church life and in the ecumenical expressions of their church life, there is an affirmation, a very strong affirmation, uh, favoring uh, the open communion for all baptized Christians. Now, how did that emerge in the Protestant setting? In the first centuries of the Reformation, uh, communion was certainly closed uh, within the Protestant churches as well, but also marginalized in many of the Protestant churches, no longer holding such a central place in the spiritual and ecclesial life of Protestant Christians. But Methodists were certainly among the first who began to understand Holy Communion as something that ought to be openly offered to all other baptized Christians. The World Alliance of Reformed Churches, meeting in Princeton, New Jersey in 1954, also resolved to admit, quote, any baptized person who loves and confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to the communion in the Reformed churches, Presbyterian and others. The German Lutheran churches in 1975 resolved to, quote, give access to the Lord's table. They said, access to the Lord's table is in principle open to every baptized Christian who comes trusting in Christ's word of, of promise as spoken in his words of institution. Uh, these churches are seeing and, and explaining their view 
and their, their uh, understanding by stressing that in their view the sacraments belong not to the church at all, but that the sacraments belong to the Lord. And therefore they would claim that uh, the church has no business uh, limiting uh, reception of communion when it comes to any baptized Christian who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now even at times of, of uh, unclarity as to how to proceed, in many churches, even when open communion was not yet practiced, there were certainly some exceptions made for pastoral emergencies. I would guess that there have, through the centuries, been exceptions made in Orthodox churches in cases of pastoral emergencies. But the quality of dealing with pastoral emergencies, of course, is not very satisfactory because it doesn't address the question of the communion of the churches one with another. And so the Protestant churches have gone through a process of several decades in which in varying configurations and formats they have achieved agreements with one another, recognizing one another's ministries, recognizing one another's sacraments, and opening the way for communion by other Protestants in various Protestant churches. So for example, in 1982, a decision was made by the United States Lutherans and Episcopalians that in cases when there would be a joint celebration by an Episcopal and a Lutheran uh, pastor, that communion was open to Lutherans and Episcopalians all. In Europe, the Lutherans and Reformed churches made an agreement of Leuenberg some years later, uh, according to which the the, uh, uh, con the acceptance of one another's sacraments and celebrations was made possible church to church, not simply pastoral need and emergency. Protestant churches on the matter of communion, whether it is closed or open, uh, has come into, have come into the closest proximity with one another in such settings as the World Council of Churches. The Roman Catholics are not members of the World Council of Churches, but participate in many activities, especially they are full members of the Faith and Order Commission of the World Council. Therefore, in effect, the Roman Catholics are also present, but not as members of the World Council of Churches. In 1963, at the Faith and Order Conference of the uh, World Council of Churches, a recommendation was made that at future conferences and meetings of the World Council of Churches, there ought to be a practice established, which I will now describe. The conference in Montreal in 63 said that it was important now to bear witness to the practice of communion in the painful and scandalous situation of a divided Christianity, and recommended that at each World Council meeting there be held two Eucharistic celebrations for the whole body. One Eucharistic celebration was to be that according to the liturgy of a church which cannot conscientiously offer an invitation 
to members of all other churches to partake of the elements. So that would be the Orthodox, perhaps the Catholics on certain occasions. The second liturgy would be one in which a church or group of churches can invite members of other churches to participate and partake. So beginning from the 1960s all the way to the end of the 1990s, that was the practice at conferences, meetings, and assemblies of the World Council of Churches. I had a personal experience with that. Uh, I was asked to be the Orthodox priest to celebrate the Orthodox liturgy at a meeting of the Central Committee of the World Council of Churches in Dresden, East Germany. I think it was about 1981 or so. And I agreed. The Orthodox Brothers asked me to be the celebrant, so I agreed to do it. Uh, one reason they asked me simply that it would be in English, uh, and that virtually everybody therefore could understand it. And I celebrated the liturgy, which was sung by a combined choir of members of the Central Committee who are Orthodox. The feeling that I had in celebrating the liturgy w at which over three quarters of those present could not receive communion and I could not invite them was, I have to say to you, a very awkward feeling. It was a feeling as if the liturgy is being celebrated by me not as the expression of the faith and unity of this community which was present, but rather as a kind of demonstration of the liturgy. As I was holding the cross at the end of the liturgy, and that, of course, I could invite everyone to approach, and I gave a little explanation, which I made up on the spot, never heard it before from anyone, uh, but I, I, my explanation was that there is a custom in many Orthodox churches to venerate the cross at the end of the liturgy, which means to kiss it, said I, uh, and that that is a sign of the pledge we make at the end of liturgy to carry the gospel of Christ into the world after the service. And I thought I did it in a form that could be understandable to everybody there, especially the Protestants. What I noted was that uh, at the end of the service, as the people were approaching, uh, most of the Reformed Christians were physically and spiritually utterly unable to kiss the cross. Because that gesture to them was utterly alien and was, was, was somehow idolatrous. And I had made the point that it's not idolatry, it's about Christ. And I carried away from that painful experience uh, some reflection, namely, is it not premature to be speaking about full Eucharistic sharing when such fairly self-evident things, for us at least, seem to be so alien to, to our Protestant brothers and sisters? It was just a thought I had then, not particularly profound, but at least uh, based on context and experience. Now, the, the Orthodox celebration of the Eucharist at World Council of Churches meetings and the ecumenical celebration of the Eucharist went on through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. When it came time in the mid-1990s to prepare the assembly of the World Council of Churches in Harare, Zimbabwe, uh, a worship uh, committee was formed 
And uh, one of the two or three Orthodox members of that committee was uh, Professor Paul Meindorf. So I heard from him, but I heard also from other members of the committee and the chair of that committee, the story of their work. You see, by the 1990s, celebrating the Eucharists in that way had become not a witness alerting Christians to the call to be active in the quest for Christian unity. It had become an occasion of hostility, mutual estrangement, and mutual misunderstanding. When you have an assembly of several thousand participants, even if you print it in every booklet, even if you make it clear in as many ways from the podium as you can, what is happening? Why is one liturgy eucharistically ecumenical and the other liturgy is closed? It is virtually impossible to convey the message in appropriate terms to everyone. The Orthodox felt at those meetings that they were being aggressively pursued to participate and partake in the ecumenical service. And those who are not Orthodox felt excluded, offended, and, and uh, assaulted by the Orthodox prohibition against opening communion in that setting to others. And so instead of being a witness to the pain of division, but also to the call for searching for unity, these occasions became, uh, became scandals. Uh, uh, they, they became those days on which members of the conferences and assemblies would have painful arguments with each other rather than careful uh, attempts to understand each other. So Paul Meindorf, I believe in the beginning, was the sole voice on the worship committee to say, we have to change this practice. Uh, it is not working either from the Christian perspective of any church nor from the ecumenical perspective. As I understand it, in the beginning, there were no other voices supporting that position. But little by little, uh, Paul persuaded the committee, and other members told me that they were persuaded, that it was not a good ecumenical symbol at this time to attempt to have official World Council assembly liturgies, one ecumenical and the other orthodox. And so that this was taken to the assembly planning committee, of which I was a member. It was a very difficult debate there. Also, we had to persuade the planning committee that this was, for this time, the only adequate uh, uh, way to approach it, that we had to have separate occasions for Eucharistic celebration. And finally, from the assembly planning committee, it went to the central committee. There, you had the most the most vivid debates because, and we have to understand as Orthodox, sympathetically, I think, what is being said by some of the others. We should not immediately condemn them, uh, or we should not condemn them ever. We should listen. We have to have our point of view, our conviction, but we certainly are called to listen and understand. And on the positive side of the argument made, theological argument made by Methodists, made by some Anglicans, made by some reformed Christians, uh, was this, that the Eucharist is something they have actually learned to cherish as a result of the ecumenical movement itself. And that in large part, it has been the witness of the Orthodox that has brought the Eucharist back from the margins of Protestant church life to the center of Protestant church life. 
There are very few Protestant congregations now, uh, at least fewer, many fewer than there were, in which the Eucharist is celebrated only once a year or four times a year. In almost all Protestant churches, it is now at least monthly, but very often even weekly. This is the degree to which Eucharist had been marginalized in some of the Protestant churches over the centuries. So they witnessed to their thirst Eucharistically, their hunger Eucharistically, uh, that they wanted this Eucharist to become a sign of the call to unity. The Orthodox and some others were arguing that, that uh, in the 1990s, as we approached the new century, in fact, the ecumenical venture had not brought about closer understanding among branches, uh, among, orthodox, um, among Orthodox and others. Uh, that in fact, there were greater elements of, of alienation in some cases. And that this was a fact, it was a reality, it was very sad, it was grievous, it was painful, but it was true. And therefore, what we do at the assembly had to be true, had to be accurate, had to be authentic. And the model accepted was that on a given Sunday during the assembly, at the same hour, there would be Eucharist celebrated in several churches. One in the Coptic church there for the Oriental Orthodox. Another in the Greek Orthodox Church in Harare for the Eastern Orthodox. Another in the Anglican Cathedral for the Ecumenical Protestants. And another in the Roman Catholic Cathedral for the Roman Catholics. The call to unity was still expressed in the assembly by Saturday evening's uh, prayer vigil, which was open to all and all were invited to participate in it, preparing for the Eucharistic celebrations in the traditions to which, uh, to which each adhered uh, on the following day. Now, this particular uh, achievement, I think, of Paul's and of others in proposing a new model, uh, obviously it is not, uh, it is not, how should I put it? I do believe that we Orthodox should be among the very first to be seeking the unity of all Christians in one and the same authentic and true church. We pray in each great litany for the unity, for the union of all. And I think we should take that seriously. The union of all isn't even just about Christians. It's the union of all, of the whole creation of all humanity. And that should be a priority for Orthodox. At the same time, we have to be authentic and true to the present situation of relations and understandings among Christians. And the present situation uh, is one of uh, greater difficulty than was faced 30, 40 years ago. And there is a paradox here. After decades of theological dialogue, which has been very fruitful on many fronts, after decades of ecumenical, um, of the ecumenical quest for unity, the reality is that there is today increasing alienation between Orthodox and especially liberal Protestants. And there is an existing state, perhaps not increasing, but, but uh, a, a state of tension between many Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church. I stress again, there have been genuine theological achievements in the dialogue between the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics. 
there, have been, there has been groundwork made that will allow us perhaps years later to build upon it, to, to, to do something uh, authentic for greater Christian unity. There have been marvelous achievements in theological dialogue between Orthodox and Protestant theologians. And that may well have built the ground also for, for something in the future. But empirically, what we are facing is, is, uh, is a situation made complex by, by contradictory tendencies. On the one hand, it is now absolutely accepted that in dialogue of Orthodox with Protestants, of course, the Protestants now recognize the centrality of the Eucharist. 50 years ago, many didn't. Today, Protestants are perfectly ready to hear the Orthodox witness to the place of the Theotokos, of the Mother of God, in the scheme of salvation and in the worship life of the church. 50 years ago, that was utterly alien to much of the Protestant world. So I'm telling you that there are things in which even the average Protestant uh, has changed as a result of 50 years of theological dialogue by their theologians with Orthodox theologians and Roman Catholics. But empirically, just take a look at what's happening in many Protestant uh, denominations in America. There are empirical phenomena in uh, the lives of the churches which are making the alienation between us greater and greater. Uh, it has to do with, uh, with approaches and teachings on sexual ethics. It has to do with uh, ordination of women to the priesthood by some. It has to do with, uh, with increasingly secular ways of dealing with issues that the churches face in the world. And the Orthodox feel more and more alienated from that. There is also the mission problem. Uh, when the communist empire of the Soviet Union collapsed and the Eastern European spaces opened up for religious liberty, which we all welcomed and which we all were grateful for, those spaces also opened up as mission territory for Christians, Roman Catholic and Protestant, who came to Eastern Europe and Russia as missionaries. Those are among some of the phenomena that have created increasing tensions because the Orthodox of Eastern Europe feel that they have been assaulted by, by prepared and funded efforts to missionize. Now I know some of the Protestants who do that. I know some of the Catholics who are involved. And I have to tell you, it isn't so simple. We cannot paint them in utterly dark and black pictures either. In their mind, they come to those areas to bring the gospel. In their mind, even when they recognize and value and treasure the presence and mission of the Orthodox Church in those regions, they are well aware, as we all should be, that the populations in those countries are thoroughly secularized after 50 or 70 years of communism, as the case may be, and that certainly no one church, not even the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia, can possibly bring the gospel effectively, quickly, to everyone in that society. So coming from the American or Western European context, pluralism, open market, and this is not about challenging someone else, it's about meeting the needs of at least some people, uh, even though there are very strong uh, presences of the Orthodox Church in those regions. But these phenomena in the last 10 years are among the phenomena that have created greater and greater distance, at least in, in these arenas, between the Orthodox and the Catholics, the 
Orthodox and the Protestant. I want to end with just a cautionary note. Uh, I think, I know that Orthodox Christians today are often in these matters uh, tempted to take extremely uh, cut and dried, black and white, simple sounding solutions, uh, positions. And what you and I, I think, those of you here who are Orthodox, which is probably most of you, you and I have to, I think, have the imagination and the humility and the image of Christ uh, within us strongly enough to recognize that Christ can make himself present in places other than the Orthodox Church. And I think that our being grounded in the Orthodox faith is about being faithful Orthodox Christians, communicants of the Orthodox Church, uh, practitioners of the Orthodox faith and daily life, but it's also about being grounded enough to recognize Christ without fear, wherever Christ actually is. And honoring Christ and venerating Christ, wherever Christ is, and sometimes, often enough, we do find Christ in a Roman Catholic, in a Protestant, and we have to, I think, honor that Christ whom we encounter among them. Let me read you a, a passage that you'll find in uh, Bishop Callistus Ware's uh, book, The Orthodox Way. Uh, it's a bit outdated, but I think martyrdom finally is never outdated. Uh, it's about uh, an experience in the camps in the Soviet Union during the persecutions. It's a letter from a Soviet concentration camp. It is only by being a prisoner for religious convictions in a Soviet camp that one can really understand the mystery of the fall of the first man, the mystical meaning of the redemption of all creation, and the great victory of Christ over the forces of evil. It is only when we suffer for the ideals of the Holy Gospel that we can realize our sinful infirmity and our unworthiness in comparison with the great martyrs of the first Christian church. Only then can we grasp the absolute necessity for profound meekness and humility without which we cannot be saved. Only then can we begin to discern the passing image of the seen and the eternal life of the unseen. On Easter day, all of us who were imprisoned for religious convictions were united in the one joy of Christ. We were all taken into one feeling, into one spiritual triumph, glorifying the one eternal God. There was no solemn paschal service with the ringing of church bells, no possibility in our camp to gather for worship, to dress up for the festival, to prepare Easter dishes. On the contrary, there was even more work and more interference than usual. All the prisoners here for religious convictions, whatever their denominations, were surrounded by more spying, by more threats from the secret police. Yet Easter was there, great, holy, spiritual, unforgettable. It was blessed by the presence of our risen God among us, blessed by the silent Siberian stars and by our sorrows. How our hearts beat joyfully in communion with the great resurrection. Death is conquered, fear no more, an eternal Easter is given to us. Full of this marvelous Easter, we send you from our prison camp the victorious and joyful tidings, Christ is risen. And remember, this letter was written by Orthodox, by Roman Catholics, and by Protestants. Thank you.